Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, our text tonight begins at verse 31 and extends to the end of the chapter, verse 42. Before we read this place in God's Word, let's ask Him for His help. Would you pray with me, please? Fairest Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us. Lord, please, we ask that You would grant us eyes to see glorious riches in this portion of Your Gospel, but not just eyes, ears and heart and hands and feet, that we might be fully invested, fully engaged, and fully responsive to what we find in Holy Scripture this night. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've come to the last stop, this this last place particularly associated with Jesus' humiliation, with his work of redemption for us. Over the past weeks since the first of March, we have gone to dark Gethsemane and have followed to the judgment hall. We have been at the house of Caiaphas and have seen Jesus at the praetorium 
We've watched him be arraigned at Gabbatha, and we have climbed the mountain of Calvary, the place of the skull called Golgotha, and now we find ourselves coming at the end of this passage to the garden tomb. In some ways, these events that we've just read together this evening, they are inevitable. We may wonder why in the world John records them. After all, if John's purpose, as we've seen repeatedly over these many, many months in this gospel, is these things are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we we might ask, how does this scene accomplish that purpose of demonstrating Jesus' messiahship, his deity, that we might believe? How does this happen? Well, I want to suggest to you this evening that these scenes are central to the Christian faith. After all, in the ancient baptismal creed that we know as the Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was crucified, died, and was buried. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel that he received and delivered to the Corinthians as a first importance centered on the fact that Jesus was crucified according to the Scriptures, and he was buried And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus did not merely faint on the cross to be resuscitated in the coolness of the tomb. No, he was dead. He was completely dead. And he needed to be completely dead in order to be the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And yet, not only was he completely dead... He was also buried. Indeed, he identifies with us by going to the place of the dead. He descends into the grave. And the garden tomb would be the place where his body would lie. But the garden tomb would also be the place where the world would begin again. When the second Adam would rise triumphantly, triumphing over sin and death, over the grave and the devil himself. But 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 we must not hasten to Easter yet. No, tonight, on this night of the supper, on the night before the crucifixion, let us consider this Jesus in whom we trust, who was crucified, died, and was buried. We know that Jesus died because of the previous scene. We heard him say, Tetelestai, it is finished. We we saw him at the end of the passage in verse 30 give up his spirit because he had authority to do so. He laid his life down as the one who was sovereign over all, who had authority to lay down his life, authority to take it up once again. But what happens next after Jesus gives up his spirit is important In verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, in terms of what this is saying, John John is fairly clear 
Generally, the Romans preferred to allow their crucified victims to struggle and suffer on the cross for a good long time. As their hands and feet were nailed to that instrument of pain and torture and death, they would raise themselves up and their feet would, might have a little platform upon which they might use their toes to push them up so that they could gr- grasp a breath and then relax and then extend themselves once again and then relax. That could go on for days. But there were occasions when they would expedite the dying process. And to do this, they would break the legs of the victim. Of course, with broken legs, there would be no opportunity, no ability to push up in order to expand the lungs, in order to somehow grasp a breath. And the man on the cross would eventually asphyxiate and die. And evidently, that's what happens here. The Jews are mindful that that the next day, Saturday, is a high Sabbath in connection with Passover week. And, and they're also concerned that God's law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21 taught that those who were executed by hanging were not to be left overnight because doing so would defile the land. And, and so for these reasons, they appeal to Pilate. They appeal to him to expedite the dying process for these crucified victims, and, and Pilate agrees to do so. Now, now, as the scene plays out, there are two important things to notice. And the first is this. These men who are coming to do this, they are professional executioners. And these professional executioners see that Jesus is clearly dead. They would have had no doubts in the matter. After all, these, these were men who executed prisoners. That was their job. They were used to seeing and securing death, used to evaluating and ensuring death. And, and when these men came to the first crucified victim, he wasn't dead yet. And so they break his legs. They come to the second crucified victim. He wasn't dead yet. They, cru- they, they break his legs too. But when they come to Jesus, what did they find? He was already dead. They saw that this was clearly the case. He hadn't fainted. He wasn't in a coma. Rather, these professional executioners confirm he was dead. Now, here's the second thing to notice. Because he was dead, they didn't break his legs. Why is that important? Well, because from the very beginning of this book, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if Jesus was in fact the Paschal sacrifice, if Jesus was in fact the Passover Lamb, if Jesus was in fact the one who takes away the sin of the world so that sin is finished and sacrifice is finished and salvation is complete, then the law had to apply even here. And God had told Israel, all the way back at the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, that the the sacrificial lamb had to be sacrificed in a certain way. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. And in case Israel missed it, Numbers chapter 9, verse 12 
They shall leave none of it until the morning, speaking of the Passover, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. And so I ask you tonight, is Jesus the Passover lamb? Is he the lamb who takes away your sin? Is he the lamb who brings to an end sacrifice once and for all so that you can run to Jesus Christ and plead his sacrifice? How do you know that's the case? How do you know he's the paschal sacrifice? Because even here, in this place, he's treated as the Passover lamb. He's treated as the, pas- as the paschal sacrifice, for he was sacrificed. He was dead, and his bones were not broken. The law, even here, was fulfilled. And yet, to make even more sure that Jesus was dead and the sacrifice was completed, what happens? Well, the, sac- the paschal sacrifice, the Passover lamb, is the pierced one. That's what happens next in verse 34. Did you see it? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The spear that the soldier used was part of his equipment. It was likely about six to seven feet long, a pole of ash wood, and on the end an iron um, spear tip that would have been used for all sorts of things for the soldier. And even though this soldier knew that Jesus was already dead, this soldier inflicts one last indignity upon Jesus. He pierces him to his heart. And watery fluid, either from Jesus' heart or Jesus' lungs, flowed out with the blood. Surely this showed that Jesus was truly dead. Showed that Jesus had a real body, And he really died, and blood and water flowed from his pierced heart. I think that's part of the reason why John, who is surely the eyewitness here, the Apostle John, places such emphasis upon it. He who saw it has borne witness, verse 35. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. Why is he making such a big deal about this? It's because Jesus had a real body. He really died. He was really dead. He truly was the sacrifice, the paschal sacrifice, the Passover lamb. But there's more to it than that. Because again, God's word predicted that this would happen. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 said, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And here he is. The pierced One, the one from whom blood and water, love and sorrow flowed mingled down. I wonder if you mourn for Jesus this evening. Do you see this one who is the paschal sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the pierced one? Do you know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Do you know this? Isn't that why Jesus died? Didn't he die to cleanse you from all sin and every sin? Didn't Jesus die completely dead, sacrificed, 
pierced? Didn't he die for your transgressions to break your love of sinning? Didn't he die to set you free? Yes, he did. He died so that you might lose all your guilty stains. And yet not only was Jesus dead, but in this passage he's also buried. With the days hastening on, Jesus needed to be buried. How is that going to happen on short notice? Would he be thrown into a pauper's grave, unmarked, unrecognized, uncared for, dishonored? Well, into the scene comes Joseph of Arimathea. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And so we know something of him. We know that he's a wealthy man. We know that he's a ruler. We know that he's a man of influence. We know that he's also a disciple of Jesus, albeit secretly, John tells us, for fear of the Jews. And with him comes another secret disciple, Nicodemus. We met Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he came to question Jesus in, in the middle of the night. We saw him in John chapter 7 as he stood up in the council to defend Jesus. But here, here he comes, Nicodemus, with Joseph of Arimathea at this moment to be identified with Jesus and to show Jesus proper honor. A tomb near Golgotha was needed. For daylight was fading fast. Well, Joseph could help with that. A tomb set in a garden area just nearby. In fact, it was new. No one had ever been buried in it. No one had ever been laid in it. No one's bones might mingle with Jesus's. No doubts would surface were he to be raised. Well, linen cloth would be required for all of Jesus's clothes had been divvied up by the executioners. Again, Joseph and Nicodemus, they had that covered. They had a linen shroud. No need to purchase it. We have it right here. Well, what about, what about the appropriate spices, myrrhs and aloes to hide the stench of the decaying body, to honor this man in death who did such good in life? Again, these men have it covered. 75 pounds, an impressive amount, even some would say royal. Don't you see the care that these men offered? Though they had followed Jesus secretly, fearfully, fitfully, yet in this hour of burial, they identify publicly with Jesus in order to give Jesus proper honor. Because Jesus was more than a teacher. Jesus was more than a wandering sage, more than a prophet declaring God's word to people. No, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they know Jesus is a king. His person was precious. He deserved this honor. But in Jesus' burial, here in this garden tomb, and in the rest of Holy Saturday, my friends, do you not hear once again the promised hope? The promised hope that rings throughout this gospel of John. For Jesus is the one who had said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I shall raise it up again. This is the one who had said in John chapter 10, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And so in these scenes in chapter 19, we have seen the whole world condemn 
Jesus. Indeed, the whole world combined, both Jew and Gentile, to destroy Jesus' body, to destroy his temple. We've seen him lay down his life as the great paschal sacrifice. We've seen the nail prints in his hands. We've seen the the spear thrust into his heart. We've seen this one who was pierced, and we have mourned, and we've run to that fountain filled with blood. And we've seen him buried in a garden, having endured the wound inflicted by a dark serpentine power, having taken the fruit from that, that tree that brings God's wrath upon his people, and having drunk the fruit of that tree down to the very bottom. We've seen all of this, but there's one thing yet to see, and it's coming. It's coming. Because Jesus has authority to raise his temple from the dust. He has authority to take up his life again, to take up his charge once again. He has authority to come stomping out of that grave, having crushed the serpent's head and having triumphed over death itself. In just a couple of days, we'll be shouting too, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And in the garden, he begins to make all things new for he is the gardener. Oh, it may be Thursday night, but Sunday's coming. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, as we have been with these scenes over now many weeks, Lord, we pray that you would that you would so impress our hearts, so stir our affections, that we would not leave these scenes in John's gospel unchanged. We long to see you, to behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, to, to hear at this table once again taste and see how good you are, that, that out of your dying love for us, you would go to such lengths so that we might be cleansed from all our guilty stains. Lord, please, the, the only way we will, we will lose our love of sin and sinning is for you to displace it with a yet higher affection. And so, Lord, please stir our affections with deep and profound love for you and of, for, because of what you've done for us. We hear your apostles say, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And so, Lord, on this night before Good Friday, grant us grace once again to bask in your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.